You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 27th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, an impromptu summit is held in Paris to offer support to Ukraine. Will Europe's leaders muster enough to help to defeat Russia? Also ahead, Israel holds municipal elections, delayed because of the war with Hamas. How much will national worries dominate the polls? We'll hear the Icelandic perspective on the conflict from the country's foreign minister. Iceland was one of the few nations in Europe to recognize Palestine's independence in 2011. In the case of the Baltic nations, they are still thanking us for being the first to recognize their independence back in the day. We'll have the latest about the so-called cholera cruise when a Norwegian ship with 2,000 people aboard was refused permission to dock because 15 passengers had rather lively tummies. Plus... British train is finding a new home in Japan, but why are people steaming mad about it? That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US president says he hopes a ceasefire in Gaza could start as early as next Monday, with negotiations taking place in Qatar, aimed at brokering a deal to release Israeli hostages held by Hamas. The US has warned Pacific Island nations after Chinese police have reportedly started to work on the remote atoll island of Kiribati, a neighbour of Hawaii. And a report into the management systems at Boeing has raised serious concerns about the aircraft manufacturer. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the French President Emmanuel Macron was notably absent from last weekend's Munich Security Conference. It engendered too much gloom about Ukraine, according to his aides. Yesterday, instead, a quasi-impromptu meeting was held in Paris and attended by 20 European leaders, including the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and the British Foreign Secretary David Cameron. The meeting was held among fears that Russia's offensive in Ukraine is making progress. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Jenny Mathers, who's Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University and a regular voice here at Monocle Radio. Very good morning to you, Jenny. Thank you. Good morning. So this meeting was impromptu-ish, is that correct? Yes. Well, I mean, it had to have been planned uh, at some level because you can't get uh, you know, prime ministers and presidents and foreign ministers together at the drop of a hat. But but yes, it was impromptu in the sense that it was clearly in response to recent Russian uh, gains on the ground in Ukraine and, you know, the increasing sort of bad news, really, um, relating to, to the war in Ukraine as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, particularly concerning the um, lack of, of weapons and supplies coming from the U.S. So this was a, there'd been a sort of a, a, a two... Uh, sided argument, hadn't they, in the last couple of weeks? Firstly, that Russia was making very good progress and symbolically having taken Avdivka um, was showing the world that it was determined to to push on. Yet at the same time, we also had um, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, saying that 30,000, 31,000 
people had died fighting in Ukraine and that they could or some's lives could have been saved had the Western um, allies delivered the armaments that they needed on time. Yes, absolutely. I think throughout this war, what we've seen is Zelensky trying to pitch his messaging uh, to to fit different circumstances. So in this particular moment, um, he needs to you know shame and motivate uh, his international supporters, uh, particularly those in the United States, but also those in Europe, to say you know look how much sacrifice the Ukrainians have have made already. Uh, look, our lives are on the line. You haven't delivered what you you could have done. Um, you know, international support could have been stronger. It could have made the difference. Uh, we could have been clearly uh, on the front foot now, and and Russia could be in a much more disadvantageous position. Uh, but for your failure to act, so this is really the message that he's he's trying to give. Um, so was this the the guiding force and in, in the Paris meeting yesterday? Because to have twenty European leaders all together, having been told last week that they hadn't stumped up on time, um, how much did that galvanise them? I think I think Zelensky's message, together with the fact that Russia is making gains on the ground in Ukraine, although incremental, uh, plus I think the news recently of Alexei Navalny's death in in prison in Russia, all of these things together have perhaps um, encouraged Western leaders, particularly in Europe, to say uh, we need to take another look at what we're doing. We need to see. What, what can we do more, uh, which would be more effective? You know, how can we realistically in the, both the short, medium and long term uh, support Ukraine? And what can they do and what was talked about yesterday? So there's a whole wide variety of different possible um, solutions or, or pathways forward that are being uh, suggested and discussed. I mean, for example, um, Estonia in January suggested that, you know, if each of Ukraine's international supporters pledged just 0.25% of its GDP per year in terms of providing, you know, weaponry and, and ammunition and so on, that would really transform the situation and would also give Ukraine uh, a greater sense of certainty into the future. Because one of the problems has been uh, the sort of stop-start nature and uncertain nature of, of how much support and when it's going to arrive. Um, I mean, Macron himself has said that you know we can't rule out the possibility that um, Western troops uh, might be sent to Ukraine to fight. And that was really an extraordinary statement. It's really the first time that a Western leader has stood up and said, we might have to sacrifice some of our own people in this war. Um, so I think there's a whole wide variety of things being suggested from money um, to ramping up military production, and especially in Europe, um, to actually sending soldiers on the ground. It's part of a wider step up, isn't it? That comment by Emmanuel Macron said that he's not going to rule out, he's going and say we'll do everything needed so Russia cannot win the war. Um, cruise missiles are being sent. Now there is this 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 line from Macron saying that you know, external troops could be sent in. How necessary is it now for this to happen in order for Ukraine to win? I think there's two dimensions to this process. One is the actual material. Uh, support that Ukraine is getting in the terms of weapons and ammunition, uh, the regularity, the certainty of that support, and the, the the linking of that support and its nature to what Ukraine needs on the ground. But the second dimension really is about uh, image and perception and public relations. So part of the, the issue that we're facing now, that the Ukrainians are facing now on the ground, is that not only is Russia making incre- incremental gains, but at the same time, there's the perception widely held, and I think quite correct, that the West is wavering, particularly because of problems in the US due to you know, electioneering. Um, those two things together really create the sort of vicious cycle of, of a downward spiral or the impression of a downward spiral for the Ukrainians. 
And so it's really important that both be addressed. Um, and so although there's no immediate prospect, maybe there won't ever be any prospect of Western troops going to fight in Ukraine alongside Ukrainians. Nevertheless, the fact that Macron stood up and said it, it, it breaches that barrier. It creates that sense that the momentum is changing um, you know, among uh, Western supporters of Ukraine and that they are not going to abandon the Ukrainians. It requires a concerted and allied effort, though, doesn't it? And one difficulty is that um, there is no single body that has been coordinating Ukraine's request for weapons so far. That's quite surprising. Yes, that's true. And and certainly, um, you know, the, the EU has the ca- capacity um, to be a coordinating body, clearly, because most of um, Ukraine's Western supporters are members of the EU. Um, NATO has another possibility of being that coordinating body because many of its members are, you know, supporting Ukraine. So far, neither of those things has happened. So there's, I think, a whole wide variety of measures that could be introduced, including things like the sort of coordination um, which which really need to be thought about seriously and action needs to be taken quite quickly if they're going to make a difference. And then the the, the focus as a result points to the likes of the United Nations. And, and there's been criticism, hasn't there, that um, the UN Security Council at least has has found itself in a, an incredibly impossible, and in an impossible situation insofar as because of the nature of the members, you're never going to get unity on the conflicts in Ukraine, nor are we going to get in the Middle East either. Um, And this has been sent out as a warning yesterday, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, the the problem is that the United Nations was not created with the idea that there would be these fundamental um, differences between the great powers that were given permanent seats on the Security Council. And so the idea was that they would all have this vested interest in peace and in trying to resolve conflicts in, in a, a non-confrontational, non-military way. And of course, that that is not the case uh, when you look at Ukraine, and it's not the case when you look at what's happening in Gaza. So it's it, there are big questions around how well the UN is going to be able to address some of these these questions where there are these irreconcilable conflicts, uh, and whether it's even um, you know an appropriate body to to, to try um, to to deal with these issues. Um, finally, tell us a little bit about a, a slightly uh, unconnected but nonetheless connected story that's been making the news here in the United Kingdom um, about a group of Welsh miners who have decided to repay the favour granted to them. 40 years ago by Ukrainians. That's right. So during the miners' strike uh, back in the early 1980s, um, Ukrainian miners um, got together and they they sent support of, of various material kinds. They sent aid um, to the, the striking miners in Wales in particular. And, you know, there, there are long historical links between uh, Welsh miners and Ukrainian miners going back to the times of, of Tsarist Russia when uh, a Welsh engineer uh, named John Hughes was was brought over by the Tsar to basically develop, um, you know, mining and, and metallurgy and so on in um, areas of U- what is now Ukraine, um, in areas of the Donbass region. And in fact, the town, the city of Donetsk was more or less founded by Hughes and it was originally called Huzovka uh, or Hughes's town. So there are these long connections uh, between Wales and, and and Ukraine. And so they were reanimated in the early 1980s in the minor strike. And now they've been further, I think, uh, developed and strengthened by the fact that the Welsh, Welsh mine have said no. Well, we we need to repay um, the support that we got all those years ago. So they're you know gathering uh, supplies and they're they're taking them, sending them to Ukraine to to support the Ukrainians. Jenny Mathers, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to the Globalist.
9.12 in Tel Aviv, 7.12 here in London. Now, for the first time since the war against Hamas, Israelis are voting in municipal elections. Residents in some 242 local authorities will choose their municipal leaders and councils in an election that was scheduled for October the 31st, but has been postponed twice because of the conflict. Well, Alison Kaplan-Sommer is a journalist with Haaretz, and she joins me now on the line from Tel Aviv. A very good morning to you, Alison. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what sort of political picture are we looking at as we go into these municipal elections? Uh, It's a very sleepy political picture. Originally, these were supposed to be hot municipal races. I mean, generally in Israel, probably as in the rest of the world, local politics is rather disconnected from national politics. But uh, over the past year, before October 7th, uh, it was such a fiery situation um, with the people in the streets protesting this judicial overhaul that the municipal elections were seen as an opportunity to sort of speak out against the government. So um, there was a lot of activity around the municipal elections and how it was supposed to reflect um, people's discontent with what the national government was doing. Uh, Then that was completely overshadowed, obviously, once the uh, October 7th attacks happened. And um, people, I think, you know, have had enough um, drama in their lives lately. Uh, You know, there's a lot of distractions. People are in the army. People are displaced uh, from their homes. So the the elections are rather quiet and people are tending to stay with what they know. And so the incumbents all have a great advantage and people aren't expecting a lot of drama or a lot of changes in the municipal races. So just it's steady as it goes is the absolute um, motto here, given the fact that everything else has been so, so so uncertain. I mean, had it's impossible to try to answer this question, I'm going to answer it anyway, ask it anyway, but had October the 7th not happened, how disruptive and how, how much change could we have seen with these elections? Um, it's not a question of uh, how much change, I guess, we would have seen, but there was a real effort being made for the local elections to reflect the discontent with the national government. And so, for example, the leaders of the protest movements were all uh, participating. They were uh, taking places on local slates. There was a, a, a party called A New Contract, which was led by the leaders of these uh, various protest movements. And they are still running, and uh, you know their, their, their um, outcome will reflect sort of how strong the protest movement still is with the people, but there's not going to be some, you know, as much of the drama uh, as there was. All of the major cities are expected to re-elect their mayors with the exception of Haifa, which um, has a mayor that was newly elected that people are not content with, and they are reverting, uh, if the polls are correct, the mayor that they had before her for the past 15 years. So even in the one place where there's supposed to be change, it's going to be back to the future and uh, and re-electing the, the mayor who was there for a long time. So what are the municipal issues that are being discussed and up for grabs? Uh, The usual municipal issues uh, in Tel Aviv, which has never had any kind of um, real uh, effective public transport except for buses, they've been digging up the city in order to build a light rail system and people are very unhappy with the disruption the construction there. Uh, Tel Aviv is also one of the most expensive places to live in the city, and there's been a lot of discontent. And that discontent was supposed to be reflected in a strong showing for uh, a woman who left the Yesh Atid uh, list. Her name is Orna Barbivai. She's one of the few former female generals. And uh, she was supposed to put up a really strong challenge to Tel Aviv's mayor of 30 years, Ron Khodai. Um, and uh, and she was supposed to really challenge him. Um, but again, the, the war sort of overshadowed that race. 
and uh, Huldai um, uh, sort of reinvented himself a little bit uh, as standing up in this whole judicial overhaul fight against Netanyahu. He's been a very strong uh, anti-Netanyahu voice. So he was not polling well when the uh, elections were supposed to be on their original date. Uh, since the war started, he's also a, a former general. Um, he's strengthened a lot, so that is not supposed to uh, to turn over. Um, the most interesting issue in is in Haifa, where the race is a little hotter, and um, they've had trouble controlling a population of wild boars around the city who are who are you know sort of wandering the streets, and so people are very unhappy with that. And that's one of the reasons the current mayor is uh, is very unpopular. She has not been able to um, appropriately address the wild boar situation in the city. Um, one place where people are really paying attention and the stakes are high is in the ultra-Orthodox sector because if you run the municipal elections there, um, uh, if you run the municipal sector there, you have a lot of control over funding for yeshivas and schools. So one of the places that um, that there is a lot of hot uh, contested uh, races is in, for example, the ultra-Orthodox city of Bnei Brak, um, because their their politics reflect the different sects among the religious um, ultra-Orthodox population. So you have everything be up, up for grabs. Um, hovering over the whole thing, however, is the um, attacks of October the 7th and the subsequent war between Israel and Hamas. How much has this conflict taken the focus away from municipal issues and, and the ability for Israelis to actually think about what's actually outside their front door? It's completely taken away the focus. And I would predict that this is going to be maybe the lowest turnout um, Israeli election ever. And uh, some of uh, a minority, but some of the... Um, uh, communities on the Gaza border and in the north, the ones that have been uh, completely evacuated where people are displaced. Some of them are trying to hold elections, but many of them have uh, have canceled elections that aren't uh, trying to have them. I mean, imagine holding municipal elections when your entire city has been um, displaced and is living together in a hotel and has to uh, vote for their, uh, for their local officials in the lobby of a hotel where they're staying in and not in the actual city that these, uh, these officials are supposed to serve. So that's a very complicated situation. And you mentioned also the fact that a lot of people who weren't um, participating in the military are now you know, soldiers called up off fighting. I mean, how does that change the way that people's, the logistics of the operations take place, given the fact that you've got to try and organise a poll with new security measures, with uh, different kinds of people being in, you know, invited to, to vote in different ways? It, it must feel like a very strange time. It is a very strange time. I mean, Israel is very used to um, uh, having wars while elections are going on. So there's a real well-oiled machine in terms of the army. How do you vote in, in the army and the ballot boxes? And people are always talking separately about counting the uh, the army votes. But, uh, you know, you just wonder, people who have been in Gaza fighting for months, you know, how in touch with the local issues are they and how much are they going to care to uh, to want to vote? But, um, yeah, as charged, in, uh, and you also have to remember that because of the um, the disruption in Israeli politics over the past five years, people have gone again and, and again to, uh, to vote in national elections. And so, you know, voting isn't something very rare and exciting. They've now been doing it, you know, pretty much every, uh, every year or two. Um, and the stakes, you know, compared to the, the national stakes and the future of the country just feel so low when it comes to uh, local politics. People just aren't able to really get worked up and excited about it. Um, my phone's been flooded with text messaging, people trying to get me to care enough about the elections to uh, to show up and, uh, and vote for my uh, my local officials. How do, how do they actually get you to turn up and, and, and to show up? I mean, is it actually, are campaigns like that actually going to work? 
Oh, they, you know, they harass you a lot on your, uh, on your telephone and they're, t- I, d- I doubt they're going to work. I really think there's going to be a, a low turnout here and, um, and the municipal elections won't have that much, uh, won't have that much impact. Um, you know, over the past, uh, four or five national elections, they've been saying in Israel that, um, these are the most consequential elections of your lifetime. And the joke is that these are probably the least consequential, uh, elections of our lifetime. Who's going to be, uh, uh, running the cities. I mean, there are a few, um, issues, you know, in terms of are the, are the shelters, um, uh, well taken care of, you know, are the cities well prepared for, for rocket fire in the city of Tzfat, which is in the north, but not too far north. So they haven't been bombarded in the northern uh, border, but it's a, a city where people, you know, are not used to uh, to getting attacked. There was a rocket attack on them a few years ago, and there was a huge uproar against the local government for uh, for not having uh, sufficient um protection of schools and protection of other institutions. So here and there, the uh, the national um, races, uh, the national issues do overlap with the local, but uh, not to a great extent. Alison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me from Paris is Agnès Poirier, his journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France, and a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. Good morning, Agnès. How's Paris this morning? Oh, Paris is grey and cold and it's back to winter, you know, a hundred shades of grey or grisaille, as we call it in uh, in France. So it's not, you know, the best day to visit Paris, I would say. Delighted to be uh, so reassured <laughs> by the by the constant state of the grisaille. Um, I'm sure it's quite pretty there. Um, let's talk about what we've got in the papers. There's this brilliant um, interview in L'Express this morning, which talks about um, spying. Tell us more. Well, we, we do like uh, spy story, don't we? So, yes, there is an interview, very interesting, with Sébastien Yves Laurent. He's a professor of political science at the University of Bordeaux. And he just published État secret, État clandestin, in other words, secret state, clandestine states. And it's about the gro- growing role of intelligence services and spies in our democracy and in our digital world. So, he he um, goes back, I mean, he goes back to the 19th century, but, um, you know, just two years ago, re- remember, just before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, there was a shift. Um, you know, do, do you remember that actually Britain and uh, the US shared uh, documents, class- classified documents with their allies, but also uh, with the larger public uh, to show and to convince the Europeans that something was afoot and something quite dramatic was going to happen. And so that um, has become a sort of the new norm. Um, and it's called, there's even a, um, you know, a term in spy jargon 
it's called campaigning. So when a state is doing campaigning, well, it's only declassifying um, uh, secrets or documents with allies in order to uh, um, to be more prepared, for instance. And of course, we know that with the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, there was a huge failure um, from Israel in terms of uh, preparing because uh, allies had warned uh, the government of ben- Benjamin Netanyahu that an imminent attack uh, was going to happen. Um, so, in fact, uh, democracies today rely less on diplomats and diplomacy than they do rely on spies. And there is now what is called the para diplomacy made of information exchanges uh, and and it's very different from the original mission of secret services that were conceived at the end of the 19th century for instance and of course what is also fascinating in this interview is that um, Sébastien Yves Laurent is telling us about the different approaches between for instance the US, France and Britain and of course Britain is very different from the US and France that are quite similar in their way they they exchange information and how they run their intelligence services. Britain has a culture of secrecy that is unique and and runs very deep. Perhaps it's due to the fact that British spies have been either intellectuals or aristocrats um, coming from uh, prestigious universities of Oxford and and Cambridge, while in France, for for instance, spies came from the military. Uh, there's also an interesting point about, um, you know, individuals, um, how their private lives are protected by law from that's from surveillance. And it looks as if in Europe we're quite lucky because there's a whole arsenal of law that actually protects our digital private life, which is almost a concept that doesn't exist in the, in the US or and, and Britain. And of course, I'm not talking about China here. Um, so anyway, so I just urge you to uh, look at that interview in L'Express. It's absolutely worth reading. It really is. Thank you for that. Um, and yes, let's move on to the story in Le Figaro. From, um, we've seen last week the uh, workers on the Eiffel Tower, staff at the Eiffel Tower, went on strike. That was all sorted. But um, an expose on just how rickety the, const- the building is, has, uh, is is very, very worth a read in, in Le Figaro um, and quite surprising too. Well, I mean, surprising, yes and no, because uh, uh, it's an old story, but we tend to forget, you know, we think that the Eiffel Tower is here for another thousand years, but actually, A, it's quite recent, and it's made of iron. And uh, Gustave Eiffel, uh, it's uh, a constructor um, who designed uh, the uh, uh, the tower, uh, said, you know, there's something you absolutely, absolutely need to do if you want uh, the tower to... Uh, 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 you know, to to continue existing, uh, you need to uh, uh, not allow rust to settle. Otherwise, it might be the end of the tower. So, yes, that strike. Um, well, that's interesting because the workers were not only protesting and being on strike for salary rise, um, but they were also aler- alerting us on the 
dire state of the tower. And they did manage to negotiate uh, with the trade unions and the Paris municipality that operates the Eiffel Tower for a big envelope of 380 million euros uh, to be spent on renovation work. Because, I mean, basically what's been going on over the last few years is that, um, you know, we've been painting over old paint, which is making the corrosion much worse. And at some point uh, soon, the Eiffel Tower will need to be stripped back to the metal, being repaired and then repainted. Uh, repainted. And the, the thing for the Olympic Games is that, you know, it's just a cos- cosmetic uh, makeover. There will be a new uh, um, uh, coat of paint, but it's not to resolve anything, really. Um, and when you look at figures, it's really extraordinary. Um, well, we all know that it's about 324 meters meters store, but did you know that it has almost 3 million rivets uh, and it's made of 7,000 and, and um, what am I talking about? 7,300 or is it 73,000 tons of iron? Uh, and um, and also the other issue uh, that the, the, the strikers were an uh, lighting is that uh, the Paris municipality, which is on the bank of, um, on the verge of bankruptcy, has um, is really milking uh, the revenues from uh, the Eiffel Tower, raising uh, the kit- ticket price in order to uh, get more revenues, 50 million taxes it gets now uh, from the Eiffel Tower, and it, it costs. 30 euros uh, to get to the top if you're taking the left. Of course, it's slightly um, cheaper if you're walking and using the stairs. It's only 11 euros. Thank you for that fabulously practical bit of information, Agnes. Um, the, the, more, the, the wider context of Paris at the moment and, and making sure that it is beautiful is very visible at the moment. If you go around Paris, buildings that have never been cleaned are suddenly rather beautiful in, in anticipation for all the visitors for um, for the Olympic Games later on this year. I mean, how welcome is that by, by Parisian residents? Are they just glad that someone's done the cleaning or are they thinking you've only done this because the Olympic Games are on the way? Well, if you look at pictures uh, from the 50s, you know, I wasn't born yet, but, uh, you know, Paris was was black, you know, with soot and and, uh, uh, just uh, decades of dirt. And so Paris is reasonably, um, you know, washed and clean and the the sand, uh, that that beautiful colour of the stone of Paris, of all those house manian. Uh, buildings, sort of a uh, sand color, um, you know, it's it's rather beautiful. Now, well, well, the Parisians are would be so glad to see the end of all those works everywhere. Uh, so, you know, we'll be happy if it's finished on time. Uh, that is not certain. And today in the Parisien, you have actually a map of all the works in Paris, and it's a bit of a, you know, uh, it's it's a bit hellish to uh, to walk in Paris at the moment because it's just a mindful you don't know um you know you have to zigzag uh, between um all those uh, works we do hope it's going to be finished and that everybody will be able to uh, to enjoy that paris but we're quite pessimistic you know it's a bit like londoners remember um the uh, during the olympic games um was it in 2012 and um, they all said oh we 
you know, we, we will desert uh, London, it's going to be catastrophe, etc. And it was magnificent. So uh, we are in that uh, kind of mood at the moment. We all say we won't be seen in Paris, we'll just flock to Brittany or or to uh, the French Riviera and we'll leave it to tourists. So we'll see, perhaps it will be a success. Agnès Poirier, thank you very much, as ever, for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is just coming up to 7.32. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick look now at what else we're keeping an eye on today. The US president says he hopes a ceasefire in Gaza could start as early as next Monday. Negotiations are taking place in Qatar, aimed at brokering a deal to release Israeli hostages held by Hamas. Both sides are reportedly in the same city, but are meeting mediators separately. The US has issued a warning to Pacific Island nations after Chinese police have reportedly started to work on the remote atoll island of Kiribati, a neighbour of Hawaii. Kiribati's acting police commissioner says the Chinese officers are working with local forces in community policing and creating a crime database programme. Beijing has been pushing to expand its security ties in the Pacific Islands as part of an intense rivalry with the United States. And a report into the management systems at Boeing has raised serious concerns about the aircraft manufacturer. The review found what it described as a disconnect between senior management and regular staff, plus inadequate and confusing safety processes. The 50-page report was commissioned long before the incident on an Alaska Airlines 737 MAX jetliner in January. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, at a time when regional conflict is causing ripples on a global scale, many of the big players in the West are feeling the pressure over weapons manufacturing and humanitarian aid. But what role can smaller states play in diplomacy? Bjarni Benediksen is the foreign minister for Iceland, and he spoke to Andrew Muller at the Munich Security Conference about whether or not smaller countries enjoy certain freedoms in this area that larger nations do not. I think there are pros and cons for uh, being a relatively scarcely populated nation with a little less than 400,000 inhabitants. But yes, 86 was a big year for us. It was a truly uh, huge event for Iceland. And we maintain that we can actively and very convincingly continue emphasizing how important the values that we've always protected are for the rest of the world. We have an example to show that uh, if you are successful in maintaining those values, what follows is prosperity of people. There are many reasons why it should be difficult to live in Iceland, but by way of emphasizing individual freedom, democracy, openness, and making sure that we uh, keep good connections with our neighboring countries, we have been able to prosper. I think in many ways also we have values that have helped us succeed. We go around the world and tell the story about gender equality, what it has meant for Iceland. We had the first elected woman as a president in the world, Vitis Finnbordóttir, and we have had the highest women participation in the workforce. For a long time, we rank number one in gender equality in terms of getting equal pay. So there are a lot of things that we can discuss which are directly related to democracy and how we go about running one country, even though you don't have an army or you don't pose a threat to anybody. But we believe that we are in 
uh, an alliance here with like-minded neighbors and others that have a good thing to defend, which is democracy and freedom of individuals. And it's strange to find yourself in a position where 70 years later, it is still true that there are nations in the world that are claiming that we are the bad guys and we are the ones that are undermining national security, whilst they are exactly the ones that are doing it. And they are the reason why we now have a stronger, better funded, more allies in NATO. I do want to ask as well, because I'm sure it has come up during this event, the conflict in the Middle East. And when you approach that as a foreign minister, again, representing, as you've said, a very small country with no military and which probably sees those events in some respects as quite a long way away. But can you see that there is a role there for smaller countries that they can exert? And again, they have that room to manoeuvre that a bigger country doesn't. Do you see a role in a conflict like that? for Iceland's foreign minister? I think we have a good story to tell when we uh, emphasize the importance of protecting human rights, that international rule-based order is to be protected, that it is unacceptable that human rights law are violated. I think we can continue to voice that in the venues that we, where we have a voice. As an independent nation, we do have a seat at the table. And during the years where we took a seat, temporarily uh, stepped in into the Human Rights Council at the UN. There were issues at the time in faraway places such as the Philippines, where we were very outspoken and did not receive any compliments from them for that. But we used the opportunity and we will continue so because we are running for the term 25-27 again for a seat at that table uh, in the Human Rights Council. In the case of Palestine, we have been aligning with most of our neighboring countries and cooperative countries, or those that we feel are generally defending the same values. But it is an issue which has caused a lot of tension in many countries. And you wouldn't maybe foresee beforehand that war in Gaza would pose or create pressure at the border in Iceland, but it has. I mean, we have a very high number of asylum seekers. At this moment, there are just over 100 individuals who have been accepted on the basis of family reunification residence permit in Iceland. And uh, at the moment, efforts are being made to help them to get out of that area, which is not an easy task. And proportionally for us, compared to many other Nordic countries, a little more difficult because we don't have any embassies or permanent representatives down there. But it, it is an example of how far away places can be affected by what is happening down there. Now, what, what we have called for in that particular case is, of course, peace efforts. We have always supported a two-state solution. We call for the borders of 1967 to be respected. And again, you ask, what have smaller countries to offer in these circumstances? Iceland was one of the few nations in Europe to recognize Palestine's independence in 2011. And historically, we have been early in terms of recognizing independence. For example, in the case of the Baltic nations, they are still thanking us for being the first to recognize their independence back in the day. So, yes, you can have a voice if you are trying to protect 
what are your core values, you can be pretty sure that time will be on your side and history will be on your side. That was the Foreign Minister for Iceland, Bjarni Benedictson, speaking to Andrew Muller. You're with Monocle Radio. in Port Louis, 8.39am in Zurich, which is where we head now. Mauritius has given a Norwegian cruise ship the all-clear to dock after finding no evidence of cholera on board. At least 15 people on the Norwegian Dawn were in isolation with a stomach illness and authorities feared the worst. But it was... Just, if that is a thing, gastroenteritis. Well, Noelle Salmi is a travel, culture and sustainability writer based in Zurich and she joins me now. Very good morning to you, Noelle. Good morning, Emma. So tell us what happened. Uh, Well, what happened is uh, there was uh, 15 passengers uh, were having symptoms uh, similar to cholera, vomiting and diarrhea. And uh, the Norwegian Dawn, as you said, was trying to dock uh, in Mauritius and was being prevented from doing so. Uh, And then after a series of tests were conducted, it was concluded that, in fact, it was simply a stomach bug. And so the uh, over 2,200 passengers and over 1,000 crew members were allowed to dock and the passengers were allowed to, uh, except those that were still feeling uh, ill, were allowed to um, Uh, stop and get off the boat in Mauritius. I mean, there's a big jump, isn't there, between gastroenteritis, which is comparatively common, and cholera. How did that happen, do we know? Well, uh, the ship was coming from South Africa, which unfortunately has been battling a cholera outbreak for the last two years. And the entire region of Southern Africa has been seeing um, some really unfortunate cases of cholera. So that's where the concern stemmed from. Uh, unfortunately, while the fact that it was only uh, a norovirus um, or you know or a stomach bug uh, was better news for the passengers, I suppose, but it, it's inc- surprisingly common. Um, the U.S. Uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention requires any ships to report uh, stomach bug if they're arriving at U.S. ports. If more, if at least two percent of the passengers and crew has fallen ill. That happened 14 times last year. Just last month, over 140 people fell ill uh, on a Queen Victoria cruise uh, from Florida to San Francisco, and another 100 uh, fell ill on a different cruise. Um, so it's almost a it's it's a it's a it's a less frightening version of the whole COVID thing, where uh, cruise ships seem to be hotbeds. Well, yes, and it mustn't be much fun if you're on board because there were 15 people um, isolated on this particular cruise, but there is a potential 2,000 people on board. I mean, there's a lovely calm messages saying passengers were entertaining themselves by sitting by the pool, attending shows and going to the bar. And it, it's, a, it's a sort of damage management exercise, isn't it, by, the, by those on board and also, you know, the, the Norwegian cruise company trying to make sure that no one gets too spooked by this. Yes, that's correct. I mean, I think precisely because of uh, memories of the pandemic and fears of boats that were docked for a month or offshore for a month, unable to dock, um, there was definitely concern about that. But it sounds like in this case, um, as you said, Emma, same reports, um, passengers stayed calm. They they had the pool, they had the bar and accepting those who were ill, uh, they were able to move uh, about the about the ship. 
So how does a company make sure that everybody feels reassured and, and you know, jumps on board with a spring in their step? Um, with, bearing in mind that, as you have just said, people can fall ill and various things can spread quite quickly. Um, yeah, well, all uh, cruise ships have a number of protocols in place. They're very strict about hand washing. There are um, disinfection stations everywhere. And they do have a protocol for isolating crew and passengers when this happens to try to keep it to a minimum. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's I mean, the thing is, there are more than 3000 people uh, on the average cruise ship. So, uh, you know, a cruise ship will tell you, well, it's only because there's reporting, you seem to see it more often. But the fact is that close quarters can spread things a little bit more quickly. But uh, but they do say they've got protocols for isolating these events once they happen. Noel, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Zurich. That was Noel Salmi. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Let's talk economy and trade with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service, who joins us once again on the line. Good morning, Vicky. Good morning. Good to have you on the programme. Um, there's an astonishing article in Politico, which you want to draw our attention to, which is about the World Trade Organisation being in damage control. What's that all about, please? It's been going on for quite some time because, of course, uh, we've seen that quite a lot of countries are not necessarily following any of the WTO directives and agreements that they have themselves signed. Uh, we've seen that happening across the world, really. And uh, there is a big um, concern as to whether the World Trade Organization, which after all is there to enhance free trade, not just in terms of goods, but also in terms of services. So we look at both t- tariffs and non-tariffs, uh, restrictions, non-tariff restrictions that exist. Um, it doesn't seem to be doing particularly well. So uh, there's a lot of uh, attack on it as well from uh, former President Trump when he was president, of course. Uh, he tinkered with it and has made the whole um, uh, area of being able to appeal against uh, you know, bad behavior by various countries. Uh, he, he has emasculated that. For the, for the time being, it has remained emasculated. This is the appellate body that exists in WTO, which has really meant that quite a lot goes on without necessarily being able to sort the issue between countries because basically the WTO has not been particularly effective in in, uh, quelling, if you like, that increase that we have seen in um, tariffs and and restrictions. And that's basically what it's all about. Of course, there's a meeting now. There are loads of things to consider. and, And in reality, we do need a WTO. And what is being discussed is really very important right right this minute in the in the sessions that are taking place. There's the, the, you, the 13th Ministerial Conference is what's under the spotlight this week. Um, and the, the Politico headline is the failure of WTO member countries to produce anything meaningful uh, could further erode um, the ability of the WTO to create new global trade rules. And the fact that they can't sit down and, and, and come together with, with trade rules, what does that say, not just about the WTO, but also about the way that the globalised world is not functioning in the way that it was, let's say, even five years ago? Well, you're right. I mean, we've been moving towards deglobalization, And really what has happened is that because of uh, COVID and then the war in Ukraine, what has uh, become more, much more of an emphasis in terms of various countries is, is their own security, food security, good security, the whole supply chain issues that we have seen, and also serious concerns about the growth of China and whether 
um, uh, the, the goods that we've been exporting it are just allowing China to then come and compete. Are they actually following any of the rules that they're supposed to be following, such as not subsidizing their products? There is all that uh, which has been taking place, and the WTO has found it quite difficult to stem uh, that because of the extraordinary circumstances, if you like, that we have had. But there's been a lot of progress, and they, they, I think the headline was suggesting that if there isn't more progress in areas such as, you know, looking at, uh, at fishing and, and the fishing stock, the fish stocks that we've got, and preserve them, for example, so that fishing subsidies um, themselves are are dealt with in a way that that preserves those stocks. I think that's a very important issue. And of course, it, it affects different countries in different ways. Those that do depend on fishing, of course, don't want any restrictions. Those that uh, do want to preserve uh, fishing stocks for the future uh, are a lot more sort of aggressive about having some sort of agreement. So so, th so there is that which is actually you know, seriously important. Uh, but as I said, I mean, food security, I mean, quite a lot of countries are preventing food from being exported, like India, when there is a problem. So uh, there is a discussion about whether that could change, um, because basically India is not following uh, the rules that it should do. There are uh, temporary agreements that are uh, decided every now and then but uh, what is happening is that for example India which operates this its own food security program as I was saying uh, is just not allowing the export of rice and wheat whenever there is any shortage in their own country so uh, we've seen what's been going on with Ukraine of course and, and Russia's intervention uh, we've, we've also got uh, in terms of exports of, of grain we've seen also uh, you know President, former President Trump if he gets re-elected talking about reimposing uh, tariffs or increasing the tariffs on, on anything that comes into the US. So that's really the background against which uh, the, the sort of concern about what will happen to WTO and whether it's still relevant uh, is is being developed. I mean, like. This is a long debate that's been had for decades now, ever since China joined the WTO, good 20, 22 years ago, that everybody assumed that you would play by the rules. And you mentioned that India is not playing by the rules at the moment. Um, how much is there ever going to be a consensus where everybody does follow the rules? It's very difficult. I mean, what you really do need is a sort of normalization of, of things. And we're not really likely to be seeing that. There are wars going on. Uh, there are factions uh, which uh, really don't like the system anyway. And we're playing the system in many ways. And there is this competition going on between uh, big countries like the US and China as to who's going to be first in tech and so on. Concerns about um, exports which might give China uh, sort of a lead in various areas, particularly on the uh, IT tech side, uh, where there are restrictions. There are also concerns about the non-tariff barriers that I touched on before in terms of allowing uh, other countries, companies to come and establish themselves in, in, in various other places, such as, again, if we can think of China, but also India with lots of restrictions in the financial, uh, the financial sector. So we are a long way from having achieved sort of proper uh, free trade. And uh, and that, I think, it has got backwards slightly. And that is why the whole of the WTO concept uh, is is at stake. But if we're able to reestablish a proper, uh, you know, appeal system again, and one with teeth, because that, as I was saying earlier, has been emasculated, well, that perhaps can bring us forward, but we're not likely to see any move there until after the US elections. Let's move to another story about a, desire, a need for change of an, of an old established uh, protocol or indeed an old established body uh, which needs modernising and we're seeing the problems at the moment. I'm talking about the common agricultural policy in, in 
the, within the European Union, uh, created in what, in the early 1960s and now becoming one of the big problems um, for that's provoking so many strikes and demonstrations across the EU? Yes, that's been going on, of course, for quite some time, quite a few months. And uh, we saw it's been going on in, in Brussels just yesterday when the agricultural ministers were all meeting. Uh, the interesting thing is that they are coming up with uh, quite a lot of suggestions on how to change the system because it is quite important to keep the farmers reasonably happy. And, of course, food uh, also being produced at, at reasonable rates. Um, I mean, right now, of course, they're, they're, they're all descending on the various cities across Europe and uh, protesting very loudly. There have been concessions already. Um, what we've seen is that some of the environmental um, rules that uh, the EU has been setting in motion have been um, sort of eased a little bit. That includes, for example, the use of pesticides, which had been uh, intended to be reduced quite aggressively. That's no longer going to be the case. Also, fertilizers use. Uh, but what the farmers are complaining particularly is, uh, first of all, the bureaucracy of the, of the cap, the fact that all the environmental um, uh, things that they have to follow are quite costly for them. Um, even the requirement to keep quite a considerable amount or percentage of land you know, unused and, and bring it back to how it used to be um, is uh, is causing quite a lot of concern. Um, and that already has been eased as a requirement temporarily at any rate. So there have been concessions from the EU. The agricultural ministers aware that there is so much pressure in their own countries are asking for more. And indeed, you mentioned the common agricultural policy that itself has become a lot more environmentally focused. Uh, but also it has not been uh, as, as, as uh, generous as it used to be. Its real value has been declining. So there are now suggesting, I think the EU uh, is already, the Commission is coming up with proposals to reform it Thank and you. rethink it. Thank you so much for joining us on the radio. Sorry to cut you off short. You're listening to The Globalist on Monaco Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Finally, how do you secretly sell a vintage steam locomotive and transport it to Japan? The answer is you can't. As the vendors of the 93-year-old heritage steam train Dumbleton Hall have recently found out. Originally green, Dumbleton Hall was painted bright red to look like the Hogwarts Express in the Wizarding film franchise. It was secretly sold to Japan to become a Harry Potter exhibit. And then people found out and the fury grew. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by the author David Badanis. Good morning, David. Good morning. Lovely to have you in the studio. Tell us more. The thing about trains is that trains, steam trains, work on their own, kind of like individuals. If Harry Potter, if they went up there and they had to use their credit card and have trains with overhead electricity and like a monthly debit account, you're not in the special world. But a steam train, you take off from King's Cross and you're on your own. 
platform and uh, is it 11 and three quarters or 12 and three quarters? I need to look this up again. Um, why do people get so cross about the fact that this, this train has gone? Is it because it is a beautiful train that should not be lost or is it because... It was flogged and painted red. It's possible because the editors of a certain newspaper thought, do you know what? If we say that beautiful uh, uh, Britain is sharing uh, intellectual property around the world, there isn't an article. But to say that terrible foreigners are stealing our heritage, turns out a lot of these trains were made in the uh, 1920s uh, for train specialists. This is this famous 4-6-0 configuration. Uh, And they all had the word hall at the end of them, H-A-L-L. One was used in the Harry Potter films. This one was not used in the Harry Potter films. Uh, it may be uh, used for some background shots. It was, a, it was a parallel train that was sort of abandoned and under wraps in a depot somewhere. So it was tarted up, the rust taken off, and taken to Japan. So actually, this is a train that was ripe for, for rebirth. Exactly, which is a, a sort of like our spirit-facing Harry Potter. Well, do you think they were trying to do this in secret at all? Or was this just a normal transaction that you, you believe was um, spotted by... A, a train enthusiast at the uh, Most newspaper. conspiracy theories uh, aren't true if I don't agree, in the, uh, agree with them. In this case, I would think, yeah, this is like a lot of uh, countries around the world have all sorts of Harry Potter memorabilia because it's a beautiful, safe England. Also, England likes Harry Potter memorabilia. I say England rather than the UK because the Harry Potter exports are an export without gunships, without the Royal Navy, without any of the bad stuff. It's like the best of Britain. It's so wholesome. Um, so tell us a little bit more. I mean, you've touched on it briefly, the, the idea of our, our, our love for that particular locomotive insofar as it is self, you know, it moves itself and you don't need a, to, to tap in with your smartphone to get on it. But there is a huge, deep love for trains. What is it about the human brain that loves a train so much? I think there's a, a couple of things. Historically, trains were the first thing that went faster than uh, than horses, faster than animals and human beings and faster than recognition. So that's one of them. But the main thing is trains do two things at once, which is incredible. And that's the reason I think children love them especially. On the one hand, they're safe because there's tracks all around them. Trains never get totally lost, right? So it's like it's having mommy around and social settings and social structures. So they have tracks. On the other hand, they are autonomous. They're you yourself. You can like wiggle around and you'll be naughty and push bedtime a bit, but you're going to be safe. So the train and the track is kind of like a human being in society. It's one reason the Harry Potter books are so popular among children. Wow, there's this beautiful structure. You're safe in the structure. At the end of the night, there's going to be a hug and a kiss and go to bed. But before that moment, you can explore. And when it comes to your brain, do you go for Harry Potter or do you go for trains first? Trains, 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 trains. I once tried to read Harry Potter out loud, and I thought, let me stick to the trains. And what is it about trains that you love? I, what I love about the trains is that it's my dream. It's like my dream to have, like, you just add more call and it works automatically. I'm a writer. I sit at a desk waiting for drops of blood to come out of my forehead. Uh, it doesn't work very well. Trains are automatic. You just refuel them. And also, I just realized that now in our conversation, that thing about the waiting structure is quite beautiful. That's what we want to explore in life. David Badanis, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. That's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Christy O'Grady and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwa and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. 